Welcome to the Revolution of Interdependence podcast. If you want to improve your life all by yourself, well, that's your business. But if you want help from others, well, that's our business. And that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. My name is Will Sampson. I'm a social scientist who helps guide executives and companies to new levels of growth. Today, we're going to be talking about self-help, the self-help culture, the self-help industrial complex. This podcast exists to help build a sense of interdependence. And so we're going to be looking at self-help and asking this really important question. Is it helping? But first, I want us to take a trip back to 1977. So the place was Pearl R. Miller Middle School in Kinelon, New Jersey. And the class was science. So for our assignment, we were supposed to find something interesting in our yard and create a presentation about it. This was the kind of assignment my teacher loved to give. It was, it was an assignment with clear instructions, but there was just enough room to force kids to think a little bit. Now, I have to tell you that I was kind of a weird kid. I used to watch food shows way before there was Food Network and Bravo. I'm talking about Julia Child stuff on public television. And for my science assignment, I chose to make a dandelion salad. That's right. So while all the other kids pressed leaves or brought in worms or acorns, I was serving my seventh grade class at 13 years old. I was serving them field greens from my backyard. You know, if you have a lawn today and you don't use fertilizer, you can probably still find those things in your yard. These were things like dandelion greens and purslane and clover. Now, it's long enough ago that I don't remember everything in the presentation, but I do remember that one of the points was about the surprising nutritional value in what we otherwise perceive as weeds. I'm sure there was something in there about what, how other cultures look at food, and so it's really no wonder I ended up as a sociologist. Now, when my presentation was done, I still remember the teacher's reaction. She looked straight at me, and she told me how good I was at explaining complex issues. She told me that I should think about being a teacher. And now, decades later, I look back over a varied career, and I can see that my most successful jobs were, uh, were those jobs where I was involved in teaching or explaining ideas to people. Now, when people tell these kinds of stories about their experience, this is the point where we typically say, well, isn't that nice? A teacher who cared about their students. And yes, no doubt, that's true. But you need to understand that there was something so much deeper happening there. That teacher was creating an opportunity for me. It was an opportunity to understand my personal value proposition in the world. An opportunity to gain confidence in my skills. Now, let me put a happy ending on the story because I took that opportunity, right? And it shaped me. It helped me thrive. So in virtually every role I've held as an adult, and certainly all the roles where I could say I was a success, I played a part as a trainer or a teacher. So would I have held those roles without that science assignment? I don't know. I can't know. See, that's the thing about opportunities. We're often given them, and we're not explicitly told at the time, here, I'm giving you an opportunity. Now, two things happen when we are given an opportunity. 
First, of course, obviously we receive something of value. And sometimes we understand at the time these things have value. It could be funding to start a business. It could be tuition to a good school. It could be introduction from a mentor to someone with solid connections. Or opportunities could also come in forms that are not as clear at the time we receive them. So something like being born in the right zip code. Now, I didn't think about this when I was in the delivery room at Chilton Memorial Hospital, but being born in the right zip code, for example, makes you far more likely to succeed. Having a parent who went to an Ivy League college, that's going to increase your chances of getting into a good school. All of these are opportunities we're given, and maybe we only recognize them as opportunities after some reflection. But it's also true that when we are given an opportunity, it can be reinforced with the network. And what that does is it, it tests the level of what we science, social scientists call social capital. So you might think of social capital as just kind of all the non-monetary things you have that you can spend in the world to further yourself. Now, this podcast is all about starting a revolution of interdependence. And starting that revolution means that we have to talk about how we create opportunities. We start that conversation by recognizing that the inequality of opportunity is just so much more than we typically think of when we use phrases like social inequality. Opportunities are those things, they're sometimes big, they're sometimes small, and they shape our path. And these opportunities play a key role in either holding us back or advancing our life outcome no matter how hard we work. So let me give you an example. In 1971, there was a young entrepreneur, and he had already experienced several business failures by his early 20s. He had significant learning disabilities, and his lack of attention to detail subjected him to penalties and taxes. And these were costs that would have just completely tanked his business. But his mother mortgaged her home, and she gave him the money that he needed to pay his taxes and keep that small record store in East London afloat. That guy ended up doing okay, I guess, at least if you consider Richard Branson's success in life, quote, okay. Here's the deal. No one succeeds alone. No one ever has. No one ever will. For every Richard Branson we celebrate, there's an Eve Branson who provided something. It could be money, support, contacts, education. Something that made that success possible. This is, this is one of the great paradoxes of personal success and self-improvement. You will never succeed without working your ass off, and you will never succeed without help. Now, we generally don't like that second part. We don't like it because it doesn't match our cultural narrative, the narrative of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And let's face it, every success story involves someone who went beyond what everyone else was willing to do to reach new heights. So take Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Zuckerberg is a hardworking genius, no doubt. He created opportunities that not that many people foresaw, and he became incredibly wealthy and influential in the process. Now, it's also true that he's the son of two successful professionals from a wealthy New York suburb. He had the time to work on, the startup, on his startup idea because his parents were paying his way through Harvard. We see this pattern repeatedly throughout our world, 
Even in areas that pride themselves on egalitarian opportunity, places like Silicon Valley, for example. So in the Valley, there's, or in the tech world, I guess, there's something called a tech unicorn. And this is a company that reaches over a billion dollar valuation before they go public. Of all the tech, American-based tech unicorns since 2011, 94% of them were headed by white men. Now, does that make white men immoral? <laughs> of course not. That's, that's crazy. And the word unfair has been so poorly used that it's really not helpful in this regard. Here's what it means, though. It means that successful people are able to take advantage of the resources in their network to shape the world in which they want to live. See, in our culture, we, we love to tell the story of that person who succeeded against the odds. But that should raise a really important question for us. Tell me why exactly the odds are stacked against success. See, we have a problem, and it's a problem of opportunities. This is true even though we have spent billions of dollars every year on self-help, hoping it will create opportunities for us. But self-help is not helping. Now, to understand why, we, we really need to look at the promises of the self-help culture. We need to unpack the beliefs of self-help. So we, one of the great myths of the self-help movement is that everyone has the same amount of time in a day. I have read that phrase in countless self-improvement books and articles during my adult life. I've heard it offered as advice by a lot of people I, res I respect, even people like Oprah Winfrey, for example. And while it's true as a matter of physics, <laughs> yes, all humans are bound by the same time standard. What we need to ask is whether it's functionally true. Is it true in practice? And if it's not, what's the effect of offering that advice on the psychology of those who are struggling to overcome barriers and craft their best life? So let's start with that basic question. Is it true that everyone has the same amount of time in a day? On the one hand, it is technically true. Every person alive on this planet will experience 86,400 seconds every day, regardless of their class, their status, any other identifier. But it seems to me that the more important question is this, is it true on a practical level? So to illustrate, let's compare two different kids between the ages of 13 and 18. So our first kid comes from a typical, say, middle to lower middle class suburban home. And at 13, their dad shows them the front lawn and the lawnmower, right? And they begin cutting the lawn at their house around the age of 13. And let's say it takes them 30 minutes to cut the lawn. They cut the lawn 20 times a year for six years until they turn 18 and go to college. So by the time this kid heads into their college dorm, 60 hours of their life will have been dedicated to lawn care. Now, let's take another kid. Maybe even it's a kid at the same high school whose parents make enough money to hire a lawn service. So by the time that kid enters college, they had 60 free hours their classmates didn't. And they could take advantage of that time however they wanted. Now maybe they spent those hours, I don't know, smoking weed and playing Xbox. <laughs> or maybe they used that time to learn a computer programming language. 
So we got two 18-year-olds who are walking into the same dorm on the same first day of college. They both had 86,400 seconds every day, but they did not have the same amount of time in a day to pursue personal self-improvement. And cutting the lawn, that's just a simple, kind of easy to understand example of the way in which social inequality can multiply over time. Now, we'll talk about solutions to this problem at the end of today, but our lawn cutting kid also spent countless hours in other activities that our rich kid didn't. So filling out FAFSA forms and scholarship applications, waiting for the bus rather than driving to school, making dinner while mom worked a second job. And that assumes other things were working in our lawn cutter kid's favor, so much so that they could even get into the same school as our, I don't know, our weed-smoking Xboxer. <laughs> so there are two reasons why everyone has the same amount of time in a day is a myth. And when it's offered by itself, it's more destructive than motivational. First of all, it, it really feeds a false narrative that life begins on a lay, level playing field. And success is solely determined by what you make of your life and time. There is no doubt that success is impossible without hard work. But while effort is, is a necessary condition for success, it's not sufficient. Improving our lives is always, every time, it involves having resources in our network and learning to use those resources strategically. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in this podcast. The other reason the time argument is a myth or something we should be cautious about is that it feeds a false sense of morality we, we tend to tie to financial success, especially in America. So more than 100 years ago, there was a sociologist named Max Weber, or Max Weber, if you want to anglicize his name. He wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Weber argued that the, that the driver of economic growth in the United States was people who wanted to succeed because that was their way of validating that they were loved by God. In other words, they believed that financial success equaled divine love. And by contrast, financial failure meant, <laughs> meant that God didn't like you so much. This had the really unfortunate effect of casting a shadow of moral failure over those that didn't achieve success at the same level of others, and maybe even others who had the greater starting advantages. Now, we know this isn't true. Just think about your, net, your own network. Probably in your network, you know some very moral people who have not had financial success. I think of, of all the urban monastics I interviewed for my doctoral work, people who have chosen to live among the poor rather than achieve you know, financial success in a Fortune 500 company. And I, it's also true, certainly, that I know some people who've had great financial success that I wouldn't necessarily consider to be the most moral people. But it's true that even to this day, more than a century after Weber wrote The Protestant Ethic, that we still have ideas about morality that we tie to financial success. So to move beyond those ideas and to provide opportunities for everyone who wishes to work hard and succeed, we need to really strike at some of those false narratives that dominate our world. The idea that everyone has the same amount of time in a day, it's technically true, but functionally bullshit. Now, successful people understand two things. 
First of all, no one has ever succeeded without personally investing hard work, effort, time, all the things they need to reach their goals. But the second thing, and this is also true, is that no one ever succeeds alone. If you read most of the self-help literature, you might have a hard time understanding this incredible significance of that second point. So our Amazon warehouses and our bookshelves on Bar at Barnes & Noble, they are just stocked full of books that perpetuate the notion that an individual has everything they need in themselves. That is, I guess I should say they have almost, ev almost everything they need. All they really lack is the knowledge that that author can give you in their book, which can be yours for the low, low, low price of $24.99. <laughs> I'm not here to condemn self-help authors. I'm an author myself. And most authors are people who found something that helped them succeed, and they want to share that knowledge with others. Getting paid for that is a just reward. But I am here to question the self-help industry. Now, we don't tend to think of it as an industry, like we might think of high-tech or automobiles. But last year, the combined sales for all the types of self-help, so this is books, courses, videos, seminars, it was more than $11 billion, and that's up from $2.5 just 20 years ago. And that same market is expected to rise to a value of $13.2 billion in 2022. So as a culture, we've invested a lot of money in the belief that we can help ourselves. Is that working? One of the topics in the self-help industry is finding happiness and overcoming depression. In that same 20-year period when our spending on self-help products rose more than 400%, our rates of depression also rose around the globe and especially in the United States. Here in the U.S., depression causes 490 million disability days every year. It accounts for $23 billion in lost workdays, and it costs the U.S. economy $100 billion, and that's a conservative estimate every year. So we all bought into the story that by helping ourselves, we would be happier, shinier, that somehow just out of our current reach was this state of contentment that we can seek and find. One of the great promises of the self-help industrial complex is that we will all be happier, and clearly that is not working. Another promise is that by helping ourselves, we will be more prosperous. But during that same time, the last 20 years, income growth has stagnated. We're not wealthier as a people, although some individuals fared quite well during that time. Let's take Jeff Bezos as an example. He became a billionaire selling, among other things, books. And let's face it, a lot of those books were self-help. That is the very definition of irony. The one selling the self-help books became wealthy. And I mean like superhero wealthy, like Tony Stark kind of wealthy. While those people buying the books didn't. Clearly, somebody is getting rich off of the self-help industry, and it does not appear to be the people consuming the product. Now, this is part of a larger trend for sure. And look, self-help books are not the problem. They correlate with the problem, but they don't cause it. But that does not mean that there are not problems with the industry. The biggest issue we face in our country is a problem of the distribution of opportunity. 
Some households are seeing a growth in their income, but the wealth is not evenly distributed. And opportunities are definitely not evenly distributed. And just so you don't think this is some kind of liberal social justice message I'm preaching, this lack of distributed income is going to, or I should say is, undermining our gross domestic product and our ability to expand the economy. So is self-help making us poorer? No, I'm not suggesting that. That would be junk science. But is it lifting us out of the muck and mire of economic stagnation? No, clearly not either. Maybe self-help is supposed to make our relationships stronger and our kids smarter. Look, (laughs) I can keep piling it on. You get the idea. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Self-help is not helping in any meaningful way. It isn't causing us to be less depressed. It isn't causing us to be wealthier. It isn't moving us toward economic thriving. And in terms of our relationships, the whole notion of self-help seems to stand really in opposition to strong community bonds. Part of what we're going to be talking about here in this podcast is the idea that it's in relationships, or what I sometimes call networks of opportunity, that we find those skills and abilities to survive, to advance, to thrive. And look, we are not thriving. Here's a really scary statistic. Right now, the fastest growing category of illness in the United States is what social scientists call deaths of despair. These are deaths by suicide, overdose, and substance abuse. This includes alcohol-related illnesses like cirrhosis. And whole communities are being devastated by these deaths of despair. I don't want to overplay this point, but frankly, it would be hard to overplay this point. The reality is that we're in the midst of a significant cultural breakdown. I'm not trying to bum you out. (laughs) I just want to set the stage for our conversation Because the reality is that the problems we face today are creating crises that are virtually insurmountable. Our nation is growing sicker, and self-help is not making us better or healthier. Now, I said these problems seem to be virtually insurmountable, and we do have a hard time imagining moving beyond them. But I would not be doing this podcast, and I would not be embarking on this project if I thought these problems were completely insurmountable. My thinking has been shaped by the work of Viktor Frankl. If you don't know Frankl, he was a survivor of the Auschwitz death camps. And after his experience there, he wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl suggests that we really need three things in life in order to find meaning. We need a project to work on. We need a redemptive perspective on our suffering. And we need a community of people who love us. If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, I shared with you some of my personal journey. And that experience involves crashing and burning and then finding my way into the rooms of recovery. In those rooms, what I found was a community of people that loved me. I already had a community. I had somewhat of a community, but I really needed to find a way to accept the love that was available. And in many ways, that's what this project is about. In this project, I'm endeavoring to help people understand that there are those who love them and want to care for them, and there are ways to find those people. But this is also a way to bring a redemptive perspective to my own suffering. For many years, I struggled within the grip of addiction, and that way of suffering is being redeemed 
by figuring out how I help provide help to other people that would like assistance. I'm not just talking about people who are struggling with addiction. I'm talking about people who have lost a sense of hope. You know, so much of the self-help literature is based on the idea of a person saying to themselves, I will. I will make my life better. I will crawl out of depression. I will change my lot in life. If people hear nothing else in this podcast, what I want them to hear is, you can. You can do it. There are ways to solve the problems you face in your life. There are people around you who want to help, and that's my project. My project in life is this. I teach people to help others. And so if that's something you're interested in, or if you find that you were someone in need of help, I hope you'll keep coming back. Now, I shared with you earlier that I'm a teacher at heart, so I couldn't end this podcast without giving you a couple things to try for yourself. And if you want a life of meaning, I would recommend you use Viktor Frankl's three elements to find a life of meaning. So first, what is your life project? What are you working on that's bigger than yourself? You know, there's the ancient saying, old men plant trees under whose shade they will never sit. And old women, I think, do the same. What's the project that's bigger than you that will keep going after you're gone? What do you want to leave behind? What's your life project? The second question I would ask is, how can you redeem your suffering? Now, for those of us in recovery, the way of redeeming our suffering is by showing up and helping other people who are trying to find the same answers. But what's the best way for you to reframe and redeem your suffering? Did you experience poverty? How can you create economic opportunities for others? Did you experience trauma? How can you be a force for healing in the world? Frankel redeemed his pain and unimaginable suffering from his three years in Auschwitz by spending the rest of his life life helping people find meaning. So how can you reframe and redeem, redeem your suffering? And third, ask yourself, where's my community? Where's the community of people who love me? A place where people will love you till you can love yourself. I'm not talking about codependence, where you need people, but interdependence, where you have other people who fill in your blanks. Who's your community, and what are you doing to give back to that community? So that's a wrap for today. Please hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episode, and follow me on social. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, at TheWillSampson. So thanks, everyone, and I'll see you next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.